From truffle-stuffed turkey to filet mignon, topped with foie gras, Rossini loved to indulge in a good meal, so much so that he became famous in his retirement for his cooking and entertaining. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Culinary Connections to Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Rossini once said, Appetite is for the stomach what love is for the heart. Eating, loving, singing, and digesting are, in truth, the four acts of the comic opera known as life. In this episode, renowned chef, food historian, and opera enthusiast Carl Raymond explores the culinary world of Rossini's time and the composer's lifelong love affair with decadent cuisine. First of all, welcome back. The goal of these talks has really been to look at food and opera and, and really how they, they intersect and to look at the culinary backgrounds of the operas that we all know and love. And by doing that, it'll tell us something a little bit deeper about the characters. Tonight, we're going to focus on a composer and one of the most beloved, and that's Giacchino Rossini, of course. Now, instead of rather than a specific opera, I want to talk about how food, the role it played in his life, and how he related that to all those bubbly, infectious concert uh, comic operas that he did. So the structure of this, we're going to follow a rough timeline of his life. I'm going to make some stops in some of the places where he created some of his greatest works. So we'll talk a little bit about opera and the food of those places. And it's no surprise that a lot of it takes place in Paris. So now I have to tell you a little bit about Rossini and me. We go way back. Um, Rossini was very important to me um, in my life. The very first opera that I ever saw when I was 14 years old was The Barber of Seville in Portland, Maine. It was a touring production from the Boston Opera, and that was my very first opera. My very first diva was Beverly Sills. And when I first encountered Beverly Sills, she was singing the role of Racina at City Opera's production of Barbieri, which thoroughly dates me, but who cares? The very first aria that I tried to sing, because as I was telling some folks, I was going to be the world's greatest opera singer, and that so didn't happen. But it doesn't matter. The first aria that I tried to learn was Una Voce Poca Fa, which for those of you that don't know, that's a coloratura soprano aria. <laughs> and I was a boy coloratura soprano. I thought I was. Nonetheless, my poor parents. Now, <clears throat> the first thing that we have to keep in mind when we look at Rossini is that Rossini was truly a rock star. He was a tremendously prodigious composer. He wrote 39 operas in only 19 years. He was the musical successor of the 18th century, people like Cimarosa and Paziello, and he was even called the Italian Mozart. Napoleon is dead, but a new conqueror has revealed himself to the world from Moscow to Naples, from London to Vienna and Paris and Calcutta. His name is on every tongue. His fame knows no bounds save that of civilization itself. 
Well, that blustery little accolade was written by a man named Henri Bell, who we know a little bit more familiarly as Stendhal. Now, in 1824, Stendhal wrote a biography of Rossini, which when you look at the serious writing about Rossini, you really have to completely discount this because Rossini himself called Stendhal a flat-out liar. The two men never met each other. The biography only covers part of Rossini's life, and it's loaded with exaggeration and error. Aside from that, 10 years after he wrote that, Cenerentola actually was performed in Calcutta. So that does give you an idea of the scope of his work. Crowds came to see Rossini's operas. People hummed the music in the streets, in workplaces. There are stories of law courts having to be shut down because people wouldn't stop singing his arias. People simply couldn't get enough of this music. Well, why? Now, the talent of Rossini, a talent in anybody, I think, is all about a harmonic convergence when a number of things come together. And in Rossini, it certainly was. First of all, it was a tremendous talent. He wrote very quickly. He recycled his music, as we certainly know. But his composition technique really left audiences craving more. It's sort of, he knew how to wind up an audience. It's kind of the way that you know that eating chocolate and sugar, you can't stop and you really should go home, but you just want more. Well, that's kind of what it was with the music. Secondly, audiences were ready for something new. They were coming off that world, of that very classical world of Gluck and Cimarosa and Paziello, and they wanted something new. And that, those operas had worn a little thin. But third, and I think this is very important, is audiences wanted distraction. Europe and Italy at this time, at the beginning of the 19th century, were fighting for independence. And they were fending off Napoleon and fending off the Austrians. And it was the lightness of Rossini's music and those crazy plots that were such a welcome distraction. And all those stirring martial tunes and drum beats from the regiments that were marching into villages all over Italy, well, guess what? They marched right into Rossini's music. But I think the greatest contribution for me was that he provided not only entertainment for insatiable audiences, but he set the stage for what was going to happen in Italian opera for the rest of the century, and also French opera. The operettas of Offenbach, for example, owe a tremendous debt to what Rossini did. Also, those great ensembles of Verdi, the roots of those are in Rossini, too. Now, I think it's important to establish right off the bat, we want to talk about, like many great artists, Rossini had some myths surrounding his life. And there are two of them, one of which is really, I think, very pertinent to what we're going to talk about tonight. One was he came to a dead stop in his composing in 1829 after he did Guillaume Tell in Paris. He didn't pick up his pen until a number of years later, and then he wrote some religious music and some piano music, but he never, ever again really composed opera, he didn't compose opera at all, but certainly not on the scale of what he had done. So there were a number of myths surrounding why he really did that. But the second one is really about what we're going to talk about tonight. He was thought of as a gluttonous eater, that he savored rich food, and that the great chef Karem was his best friend, and that he hung out with chefs, and that he wrote operas in restaurants while waiting for his order in taverns, and that he was an obsessive cook. Not quite. The biggest takeaway from this talk, I hope, will be that yes, Rossini did love good food. And while he truly loved it, the food he loved was simple. And they were well-cooked dishes with fresh ingredients, it sounds like the food scene today, that came from his years in Emilia-Romagna, in Rome, and Naples. That's, and that's what's in his letters. That's the kind of food that he loved. 
His reputation for, for overeating and rich and complicated dishes came from the fact that he was often feted at these big, fancy dinners. And while I think he enjoyed himself when he entertained at home with his wife, it was much simpler. Yes, it was lavish. People, he liked to make sure people ate well, but it was an awful lot simpler. Now, Rossini had two uh, significant periods in his life in Paris, in the 1820s and then again in 1855 until the end of his life. Now, these years were tremendously significant in the development of French gastronomy, but Rossini was very much an observer and a participant in the world, as the world of French gastronomy as it was developing. I want to put forth as a thesis for tonight that it was really in his music that Rossini shared that same exuberance that he loved in his food, that joy of being together, that witty repartee, that conversation, talking with each other, talking over each other. We know that Rossini indeed loved his food, and it's said that Rossini cried only three times in his life at the fiasco of his very first opera, second, when he heard Paganini play the violin, and third, when he was at a picnic and the turkey with the stuffed truffles fell overboard in the boat. Now, truffles figure predominantly in the food when I talk about Rossini, because when you talk about dishes a la Rossini, it usually means that it's made with truffles, also foie gras, but truffles. And this is natural, because truffles were something that Rossini loved. They're, they're grown one of the places that they're excuse me, grown as in northern Italy, and that was an area that Rossini knew very well. Now, Waverly Root, who's one of the great old classic food writers whom I love so much, said, an Italian meal is like an opera. Drama, drama, drama. And I think that's true. And I feel very strongly that Rossini composed his operas, whether he intended to or not, and his great set pieces exactly the way a chef composes a meal. His love of dining and bringing people together over food just had to peek out of the music, just like bubbles rise to the top of a glass of champagne. A Rossini overture, in my mind, is the perfect roadmap for a great menu. A slow start, maybe low in the orchestra, the amuse-bouche. Just to whet your appetite, a few chords, no real harmony yet. And then the various ingredients that compose the first course, an introduction, maybe in the strings, the beginning of some themes to tease the palate. We gather momentum now as we push onto the main course, the full introduction of multiple themes and tastes and flavors accompanied by different sauces and side dishes and vegetables in different keys, building and building, weaving in and out of each other and around each other. The diner and the listener intoxicated and riveted to the plate, which is our culinary stage. And then... Rossini and the chef pull back. It becomes quiet again to clear the palate. And then we start again, slowly at first, but then faster and faster and faster. Rossini launches his trademark, the famous Rossini crescendo, repeating phrases over and over again and faster, leading right into the dessert, the great and grand climax of it all, when our senses are overwhelmed and our taste buds are engaged full throttle, 
and Rossini brings his overture, and our chef brings his meal to a dramatic, breathless, and memorable close. This is the overture to Il Barbieri di Siviglia.
See what I mean? Rossini was born in Pesaro, which is in uh, La Marche, which is one of the lesser known regions of Italy. It's sort of the west of, of Rome and, and Umbria. And it was fairly remote in Rossini's time because there's a mountain range that goes right down through the center of Italy, which kept it pretty uh, secluded. And the main access was actually by the port. And Rossini's earliest taste would have really been for the seafood of the region, which had tremendous Greek influences, those rough and savory tastes that combined the old Etruscan cuisine, those earthy and hearty foods. And I think a really good comparison, if you're not familiar with food of this region, is to think of the south of France and think of the cuisine around Marseille and Provence. Because one of the famous dishes he certainly would have known is a brodetto, a seafood brodetto, which is a seafood stew, which is very similar to the bouillabaisse that you find in the south of, of France. Now, Rossini's parents were musicians. They traveled around. His father was a trumpeter and his mother was a singer. And to get work, they would go from regional opera house to regional opera house. And at one point, left the very young Rossini in Bologna to apprentice to a pig butcher. This, my friends, is the very key of this whole thing. Because, and I will explain to you why, this exposed Rossini to the food of the great Emilia Romagna, which is justly famous for the sauce bolognese, the parmigiano-reggiano. The food here is very simple, but the, and the flavors, but the complexity of the taste of the natural ingredients make one of the greatest cuisines of Italy. Emilia Romagna has one road running through it, and it's a road that goes all the way back to Roman times. And that was important because that allowed a lot of trade into the region. So you find some interesting ingredients here. It was also a center for wheat production, and people say some of the greatest pasta even today is created here in Emilia Romagna. The milk, of course, for the Parmigiano Reggiano, and of course the pork in this region for the prosciutto. Now, as Rossini was getting older and living in Paris, we know that he was surrounded by the very best food that money could buy. He really waxed nostalgic for this food that he grew up with as a young child. By 1810, 11, 12, he had composed some one-act operas. He was starting to compose for Rome and Venice and Ferrara, even La Scala. And I think an example of how he started to meld food and opera together, food and music together, was in this particular opera called Ciro in Babylonia, which was done for Ferrara. And it was really the first to show that connection. Now, Rossini was asked for a very serious opera 
for Ferrara. So he concocted this. The opera is serious. It's based on the biblical story of the overthrowing of the Babylonian king Balthazar and the Persian ruler Cyrus the Great. It was a total failure. And Rossini retreated back to Bologna, where he was treated to a great dinner to kind of nurse his wounds. And for a gift that he gave to the host for the dinner, he went to a pastry shop and he asked them to create a part of the set design, a ship from the opera in marzipan with a broken mast that had Ciro written on it and the sails all crumpled around the bottom. So he brought this to the dinner and Rossini and all the guests attacked it with brio or gusto. <laughs> now the other interesting thing about Ciro of Babylonia is Rossini incorporated what he called an aria di sorbetto, the sorbet aria. Well here is the problem. He was faced when he composed this with a secondary soprano that apparently had neither the looks nor the voice to carry much off. So what he did is he composed an aria and the idea was that when she sang it everybody went out like an intermission to have their sorbet while she was singing this. So it came to be known as the aria di sorbetto in Italian opera. It was an aria that you could sort of sneak out. And apparently the story was that she couldn't sing very well except she sang a really good B flat. So he composed this aria with a lot of B-flats and a lot of fill-in music with the orchestra. Venice. Now, Venice was a city that was going to bring him his earliest fame, and his commission Tancredi, which was another serious opera, was commissioned by the great La Fenice in 1813. He was only 21. 
thing about that is, if you know Tancredi, there's an aria called Di Tanti Palpiti, which is the entrance aria of the hero Tancredi. That came to be known as the rice aria. Now, there's some mythology surrounding this, too, because it was often said that he composed that while he was either waiting for his rice to cook, his risotto, or he was in a restaurant waiting for his order of rice to arrive. Now, it takes about 20 minutes to cook a good risotto, so that will give you a good idea of how long he apparently uh, took to compose the aria. Now, Venetian food is important here because it's one of the great regional cuisines of Italy for sure. The great national natural resource there is, of course, the sea. But Venetian cuisine has the taste of conquest. And the East, Venice ruled the spice trade from the 8th century all the way through the 15th century, and it was one of the greatest maritime powers in Europe. So traditional Venetian dishes have the influence of years of all that trade. The pepper, the cinnamon, the ginger, cloves, all crop up in Venetian cooking. But by the time that Rossini spent his time in Venice, it was no longer that power at all. It had sort of become an entertainment center and playground for Europe. There were bits of old Venice that still remained, and music was one of them. There were no real restaurants, though, at this time. People that were dining, they dined in their grand palazzi, and that food would have very much still been the food of the Renaissance of two or three hundred years before. And that would have been, the, rent, the food of the Renaissance really is the basis of what we know of as French cuisine today, the beginnings of sauces, the elaborate cakes and pastries, but it was the cafes where food culture really thrived in Venice. And here too, the Quadri and the Florian. These are two cafes that actually exist today. They're two of the oldest. These are cafes that absolutely Rossini would have known. The Quadri opened in 1775. It began as a coffee house. Italians, of course, are passionate about their coffee and was known as a hangout for many famous artists, Stendhal and Dumas, Proust went to both um, Quadri and Florian, Goethe, Goldoni. But Venice saw the debut of one of Rossini's truly great comic masterpieces, and that really sent him to the height of his fame. And it was the 1813 debut of Italiana in Algeria. This is one of my very, very favorite Rossini operas. Now, the arias and ensembles, they come fast and furious. They leave the audience and, frankly, the plot in their wake. But one of the greatest scenes in Italiana is the um, finale of the entire opera because it revolves all around food. So here's a little bit of the story. Isabella, who is our Italian girl, in order to distract Mustafa, who's this Italian bey that is, is keeping her, she wants to escape back to Italy with her beloved Lindoro. So she comes up with this crazy wild plan that she says that the bey, Mustafa, must become a member of the solemn Italian order of the Papatacci. And all the Papatacci do is eat and drink and sleep and must be completely oblivious to whatever happens around them because they're eating, drinking, or sleeping, and thereby they can escape. So the details really don't matter. But what does matter is the great Marilyn Horn in the Papatacci scene from Italiano. <laughs>
piacere tutto quel che si vorrà, io farò con gran piacere tutto quel che si vorrà. Bravo, ben, con si si fa, bravo, ben, bravo, ben, bravo, ben, con si si fa. Now, the next part of Rossini's life actually was in Rome. And in 1816, this brought the premiere, of course, of Il Barbieri di Siviglia to Rome. There's a famous story that when, uh, which I think this one's true, is that finally when Rossini went to Vienna and had the opportunity to meet with Beethoven, he found him this gruff and difficult man. But Beethoven looked at Rossini and just said, write more barbers. Not a bad advice from uh, the great Beethoven. So we know that Rossini wrote Barbieri very quickly, probably about three weeks um, of the composition. And he did take some music that he had used in other operas. Elisabetta di Inghilterra that he had written um, already, that was in Barbieri. And Barbieri was not a success at the premiere at all. That's, that's sort of a famous story. There were a number of things that went wrong, some things on the stage. Also, remember, there was another Barber of Seville, the Paziello Barber of Seville, which was far more popular. And Paziello was a very famous composer. So the people that really stood up for Paziello were there to hiss and boo at um, Rossini's work. But things seemed to change overnight, because by the second performance, things had righted themselves. And I love the story that Rossini was apparently rushed through an explanation of the second night's performance. He didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to talk about what he was having for dinner. And it was an amazing salad that he spent his time talking about. So even in the face of a premiere, he liked talking about uh, salad. The other thing about Barbieri is those famous Seville oranges. Now, the Seville orange is a very special orange. I'll be talking about that in the third talk when I talk about the history of food um, in Seville. But this whets your appetite 
uh, just a little bit. Now, moving on from Barbieri, we have Cenerentola, which as I guess, I think for me, both Italian and Cenerentola are my favorite of the, all the Rossini operas. This is, of course, Rossini's retelling of the Cinderella story. It premiered in Rome again. This was in 1817. Now, there were some notable changes from the world of Cinderella as we know them. There's no glass slipper. There's no real fairy godmother. And there's not really a ball. There's a dinner party, which works very well for us. Now, magic can and does happen in the story of Cenerentola, and it has some of Rossini's very best ensemble writing, including the Act One finale, which, guess what, is more food. It's set around a dinner party that has replaced the big famous ball that we all know. The prince still wants to discover the identity of the veiled lady who has appeared, much to the aggravation of the stepsisters and their father. So the food-laden Act One finale of Cenerentola.
Naples. Now, the late 18-teens, Rossini went to Naples, and he came because he was asked to compose for the Teatro San Carlo, which was really one of the greatest opera houses in Italy. And San Carlo had an impresario named Domenico Barbaia. And he was interesting because he actually began his life in the food world. He started off as a waiter, he worked in restaurants, and appropriately, because the Neapolitans like to name things for things, there was a drink that was named for Barbaia, which now we see in, in Italy, we know it as the Granita di Cafe, one of those wonderful iced coffee slushy things. Well, at the 18th century, it was called a Barbaiata, which was named for Barbaia. And the Neapolitans are very serious about their coffee. Naples was, and, and really is for a lot of people, the, the soul of Italian cooking. And that's where the base of Italian-American cooking came from, because there was such an immigration from Naples over here to the East Coast of the United States. The Neapolitans always have had a way with tomatoes. And that is because, same in Sicily, is that volcanic soil creates particularly sweet tomatoes. Now, Rossini stayed in Naples for seven years, and he composed again his serious operas, Elisabetta, Queen Elizabeth, Otello, La Donna del Lago, Hermione. These were all his compositions in Venice. And when he was there, his star soprano was one of the great 19th century sopranos, Isabel Colbran. And he wrote a number of his operas for her. Well, she was the mistress of Barbaia. So there was a little bit of political scandal going on. In fact, there was so much scandal that Rossini prevailed in music and in love. And in 1822, he married Colbran himself. The following year saw him in Italy, but also in Vienna, where his music was so adored. And that's a tough music crowd. But back to Italy to create Semiramide. Semiramide was the last opera that Rossini wrote for Italy. No more opera for Italy. It wasn't the end of opera altogether. But we need to take a little look at London and Paris now. Rossini had received an invitation to go to England to write for London's audiences. They wanted him. And on the way, he stopped in Paris. And it was really the beginning then of his exposure to the great French cuisine. And that whole aftermath of the French Revolution was where you got to see the beginning of the gastronomic culture and France's brand new invention and best export, the restaurant. Now, Rossini was such a great star. The French really wanted him, but he felt he really had to honor his commitments to London. So on he went. But Rossini and Colbran did stop in Paris and, of course, were the guests of honor at a great dinner at this restaurant, Le Vauquitet, which was on the Place du Châtelet. And it was a grand dinner full of a who's who of who was who in the artistic scene in Paris at the time. The newspapers called it a colossal picnic. There were 150 guests. The room was adorned with flowers. There were medallions all over the room with the names of Rossini's operas. His initials were created in gold over the place where he sat. The great singer, Judita Pasta, sat on his right. Colbran sat across. Can you imagine two battling divas over him? There were toasts that were made to Cimarosa and Mozart and Paziello. The menu, unfortunately, has not survived. However, we do know that during the coffee course that ended the meal, the orchestra struck up the Buonasera music, which is very famous from Barbieri, and that escorted everyone into their carriages. Now, here's the point of that dinner. One wonders <clears throat> if that dinner started to roll around in Rossini's head a little bit and serve as the inspiration for another great scene in an opera called Il Viaggio a Reims. 
Karam. In London, Rossini was entertained at the Brighton Pavilion by, the, uh, by George IV, who was the former Prince Regent. Now, the Royal Pavilion down in Brighton, you can visit it today, very important in the world and the history of culinary affairs because the great chef Karem was actually employed there and created a great number of his dishes. It was a little bit before Rossini was there, but nonetheless, the influence was apparent. Karem was the most important thing to hit French gastronomy since the Renaissance. This extraordinary chef was actually abandoned by his parents at the gates of Paris when he was a little boy. He was scooped up by a pastry chef. He apprenticed to him, and he became one of the greatest pastry chefs and influ culinary influences that Western gastronomy has ever known. He's the one that created the five mother sauces that we know about. He codified French cuisine. He set up the system of the kitchen brigade that you see here. This is actually the kitchen at the Royal Pavilion. He started the whole system of French sauce making, which had its roots back in the Renaissance. That famous toque that chef wears, that was an invention of Carême's. And he wrote the most famous cookbook since La Varenne had written back in the 1600s. Fascinating to realize that there was no real advancement in French cuisine from the 1600s until the 1900s. Back to Rossini. So Rossini found that invitation from the French just too tantalizing, and he did go to Paris. And in 1824, he became the music director for this. This was the Théâtre des Italiens, which was the Italian theater. What's important to remember about what was going on in French society, sort of post-revolution, is that society was moving out of their chateaus and out of their townhouses and into very public spaces. You wanted to be seen eating and drinking and cavorting and whatever else you wanted to be seen doing it. And one of the places was at the opera. Now, Paris had two operas. There was the Opéra, which was the class, the home of Gluck and Lully and Rameau. And then there was the Théâtre des Italiens, where Rossini's comic operas were so prevalent and people loved to go. Now, the Rothschilds, one of the centers of real Parisian food society, at this point was the home of James and Betty Rothschild in Paris. Now, they were a very wealthy banking family, the Rothschilds, of course, European family. And it was here that Carême and Rossini actually intersected. There are a lot of, as I said at the beginning, myths and anecdotes about Rossini spending time with Karem. None of this is documented other than um, their connection through the Rothschilds. Now, the Rothschilds were outsiders into Parisian society, and they desperately wanted to be accepted by the Parisians, so they had a plan, and they saw Karem as being part of that, and having dinner guests like Rossini as the other part of the ticket. So the Rothschilds began throwing these immense dinner parties now, if you had the kind of money that the Rothschilds had, you could throw these dinner parties in your townhouse because everybody else was going out to restaurants. Now, they immediately employed Karem to be their chef, who designed their menus, and they even designed the dining spaces from the dining room to the ballroom to the garden of their house as stage sets for these sculptures, these food sculptures that Karem uh, would create out of fruit and spun sugar. They were called his pièces montées. Now, the second part of their strategy was to invite the most famous names in Paris that they possibly could. And of course, their house could accommodate up to 3,000 people at a time. And one of those was Rossini. There is a famous anecdote. I do choose to believe this one. Now, Rossini was getting, as you can imagine, invitations from all over. And one of them, of course, was from America to come to America. And he said, I will only go to America if Karem will go with me. Neither of those things ever happened. Rossini's career in Paris led him now to compose at the great Opera. Now, the Garnier, the Palais Garnier that we think of today, this was the precursor. This was the Salle Pelletier. This was the opera before we 
had the great Palais Garnier. And his career in Paris culminated with the production of Guillaume Tell in 1829. Now, the composition of Guillaume Tell was significant because it was after that that Rossini returned to Italy and silence. There was no more opera, there was no more composition for really a number of years. His health was starting to be a little shaky at this time. And one point I really just like to make is when you were an opera composer at this time and somebody commissioned you to make an opera, you had to go there, you had to write it, you had to stage it. Then when somebody else wanted to stage it, you had to go there. And there was a lot of traveling around and it was difficult and roads were not what they were. So I can understand how he just got tired. But he left Paris and he spent some years predominantly in Italy, which saw the end end of his marriage with Colbran, he remarried a former courtesan. In 1855, Rossini returned to Paris to live out the remainder of his life. And it was really in these years that we get, I think, the best sense of what Rossini really thought and felt about food. And we get a lot of this from his letters back to friends in Italy and England, and also accounts of the parties that he threw in their diaries. The best way in history, as you all know, is to read about what somebody else wrote about you, and you really find out what was going on. But when Rossini came back to Paris, he really was treated like a star. There were thousands of people that came to visit him, but his life was a little bit quieter than what it had been when he was here in the 1820s. We know what he loved for breakfast. He loved a simple coffee, maybe a little bit of glass of red wine, the same thing to get you going, an egg on cocotte, and then he would go for a drive in the Bois de Boulogne before he came back. And he had a very simple supper around six o'clock in the evenings. But he loved to search out some of the foods that he had loved when he was spending his earlier years in Italy, in Emilia Romagna and Bologna that we talked about. And there's a famous story that recounts that he was on an expedition one day with a friend and they found a pasta shop in Paris. So they went in and Rossini asked for some Neapolitan pasta. The pasta maker brought out what he considered Neapolitan pasta to the horror of Rossini who said, these, but this is Genoese pasta, not the same thing. And if you don't have Neapolitan pasta, I don't want anything else. And he left the shop. Well, the shopkeeper turned to Rossini's friend and said, you know, if he knows as much about music as he knows about pasta, he must write some pretty beautiful stuff. Now, Rossini himself preferred smaller dinner parties, 10, 12, 16 people of his closest friends, and he himself said that he only went out to a restaurant two or three times a year. For Rossini, his idea of the perfect mix of food and friends was to have a dinner party on a Saturday night, and these became the hottest tickets in Paris. They, of course, expanded beyond only 16 people, and he called them his samedi soirées, his soirées on Saturday night. And Rossini's creativity began to come back because part of these evenings after the food is people would perform little parlor selections and he began to compose again. We do have a wonderful story that does give evidence of Rossini cooking himself and it was at one of his samedi soirées, his Saturday night gatherings in 1864. It was an American couple, this young, very newly moneyed banker and his wife were guests of Rossini's and Lily, who fancied her, the wife, who fancied herself as a singer. Rossini apparently, again, did not agree. But she was left to wander through the salons and she recreated this in her diary. I saw Rossini's writing table, which is a thing never to be forgotten. Brushes, combs, toothpicks, nails, and all sorts of rubbish lying about pell-mell. And prominent among them was the tube that Rossini uses for his macaroni alla Rossini. Prince Metternich says that there is no power on earth that would induce him to touch any food alla Rossini, especially especially the macaroni, which he said was stuffed with hash and all sorts of remnants of last week's food. 
food and piled upon a dish like a log cabin. So has Rossini really moved all that much farther from the pig butcher where we started? But even in later years, Rossini maintained a real refinement in his taste. He loved simple but perfect. In 1866, he wrote to a friend in London regarding a cheese that he had ordered. The cheese sent to me would have been worthy of a Bach or Handel or Cimarosa. For three successive days, I have enjoyed it moistened with the best wines from my cellar. The cuisine chez Rossini was lavish in the sense that Rossini liked to make his guests feel comfortable and know that they were well fed. And he pulled ingredients often from Italy and ordered them. There was macaroni made from nuns in L'Aquila, Seville hams, Modenese Zamponi, these are stuffed pig's trotters, olives from Ascoli, Bolognese Mar Tadella cheese from Gorgonzola, and of course wines as well. And I think Rossini would have fed in really well with today's food scene. He was passionate about artisanal food. Where it was made, who made it, and when it was made were all important to him. They mattered. Any old cheese or ham would just never do. But aside from the food at the Samedi Soirees, there was that part of the evening where people performed and he composed. And his creativity returned and created a series of piano pieces. He called them his passion de la vieillesse, the sins of his old age. And eight of them were written about food. We have piano music dedicated to radishes and almonds and anchovies and figs and pickles. And of course, there's one dedicated to butter.
Over the years, foods have appeared, even during Rossini's lifetime, that were dedicated to him. We had macaroni alla Rossini, we had velouté alla Rossini, we had Rossini uh, risotto alla Rossini, filet of sole, cannelloni alla Rossini, pheasant supreme alla Rossini, stuffed turkey alla Rossini, and there's even a Rossini cocktail. Now, anything alla Rossini usually, as I said again at the beginning, involves truffles and foie gras. It's expensive and earthy, and the cocktail does not have foie gras, just so you know. It's a strawberry puree. But here we have the most famous of all, and I gave you the recipe tonight, is the Tornados de Rossini, which is a filet mignon sautéed on buttered toast with a slice of foie gras and truffles on the top, glazed with a sauce of veal stock, Madeira, more chopped truffles, and more butter. Rossini did not create this, and there are a lot of conflicting stories about how it was created. The chef Casimir Moissan, who was one of the trainees of Carême and was chef of the famous Maison Dorée um, restaurant in Paris in the mid-19th century, is really the one that created it. Now, we have one last selection to talk about, and I want to end with Rossini's own words, because he says it way better than I ever could about how he really felt about food. I know no more admirable occupation than eating that is really eating. Appetite is for the stomach what love is for the heart. The stomach is the conductor who rules the grand orchestra of our passions and rouses it to action. The bassoon or piccolo grumbling its discontent or shrilling its longing personify the empty stomach for me. The stomach replete, on the other hand, is a triangle of enjoyment or a kettle drum of joy. As far as love, I regard her as the prima donna par excellence, the goddess who sings cavatinas to the brain, intoxicates the ear, and delights the heart. Eating, loving, singing, and digesting are in truth the four acts of the comic opera known as life, and they pass like bubbles in a bottle of champagne. Whoever breaks them without having enjoyed them is a complete fool. Now, I'm gonna end with Rossini, one of Rossini's most brilliant and best loved moments. It's the non piumesta, which ends Cenerentola. Now, you didn't miss anything. This aria has nothing to do with food. I will beg your indulgence, non piumesta. Non piumesta, tanto il fuoco staro sotto
Carl Raymond in the first installment of the Metropolitan Opera Guild's popular Divas and Dinner lecture series from this past season. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, please leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at info at metguild.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. We'll be back in the coming weeks with part two of this series, inspired by La Traviata and French cuisine, found in Violetta's Paris. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.